Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, welcome to episode five of Pubs, Pints, People, our virtual world or metaverse, as Mark Zuckerberg likes to call it, of the camera podcast. I'm Claire Phillips. My fellow presenters are Matt Bundy and Ant Fierillo. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. And we're well into autumn now, as I'm sure you've noticed, because it's it's jolly cold. Cider month has, has been and gone. I, I know Matt's probably distraught about that. And uh, Halloween and fireworks night have been and gone. And the clocks have gone back. But in this episode, we're actually looking forward and thinking about the pub of the future. Yes, into the future, the brave new world. Now, I don't know what sort of thing comes to mind when you think about pub of the future. Perhaps robotic bar staff, zero gravity urinals, <laughs> beer instantly reconstituted from granules. Oh, so no, please. I actually don't. think I've visited one or two of those pubs in Cumbria a little bit like that before, to be <laughs> honest. But uh, <laughs> lots of good ones too, though, there. Don't, don't tweet in, Cumbrians. I'm one of you. <laughs> so now there have been plenty of examples in science fiction over the years, from Star Wars and Blade Runner to Passengers, some of which are very dystopian indeed, but although clever high-tech will surely feature in the pub of the future, there are plenty of social changes that need to be included too. There absolutely are. It's not all just about robots, is it? Because, of course, in the past, pubs had signs outside saying who wasn't welcome inside, and that was just plain overt discrimination and and it was actually legal until 1968 when it was eventually and rightly banned and of course we're still fighting the whole race sex and other forms of discrimination in so many other areas of society right now they certainly are and and pubs are or certainly should be at the heart of our communities and i'm sure that most people would agree you can tell a good pub by the welcome you receive either whether you're a regular or indeed a visitor and that's one of the themes we'll be talking about during our interviews today but I'd hope that the days of walking into a pub when the chatter at the bar falls silent and heads swivel round with hostile looks are are now behind us, but I'm not sure that they totally are everywhere. No, I agree. I don't think they are at all. I think one thing we can definitely say is that Camera strongly supports inclusive pubs and clubs that fully represent the communities that they serve. And you can read an interesting piece, actually, on Camera's Learn and Discover section. Uh, it's by Katie Maver, fantastic writer, and it's called The Pub of the Future. Very on brand for this uh, episode. Uh, it's actually the inspiration for this episode. Uh, and as always, the show notes contain links to that article and all of the other online content that we mentioned. So check them out in there. Now, before we get stuck in, this is the 
first episode of our podcast since Dishy Rishi's budget on the 27th of October. And Camera has been very positive about the changes to taxation for beer and cider. Yes, in the last week of October, the government announced the latest budget, which had some very key updates for the beer and cider industry. Camera have achieved the following campaigning goals, and this is a big we, folks, because we now see the principle of a differential rate for tax on draft beer and cider, the raising of the lower strength duty threshold from 28 to 3.5% ABV, and progressive duty system for all small cider makers. Indeed, our very own Claire as well had the chance to catch up with Camera's chief executive, Tom Stainer. It's his first appearance on the podcast, and this was recorded quite last minute as soon as the news came out, so please do forgive the sound issues. Perhaps I can start by asking you about the announcement in the budget that the Chancellor has described this as the biggest cut to cider duty since 1923, the biggest cut to beer duty in 50 years and taking three pence off a pint. But I guess the devil's really in the detail here, isn't it? Yes, the the devil's always in the detail. And although there's some way to go on all these measures that are announced in the budget, I think that you have to see it as a really positive um, budget. And it's a really positive win for camera campaigning and other campaigners in the industry. And the really fundamental, important principle that's been established is separating out on-trade draft products from the rest of alcohol duty. And, and that's got a huge amount of knock-on effect. But it was a really important principle to get established, and that's what we're celebrating. The the Chancellor has indicated that at the moment this is for larger containers for the, the draft relief. Um, there's been some upset about that with, within the industry. I think there was a rather unfortunate photo call as well um, where the Prime Minister and Chancellor were seen with smaller containers that weren't actually likely to feature in this cut so there's a way to go yet isn't there yeah and that's a really key thing that we're currently pushing on the container size has been set at 40 litres in our submission for consultation ahead of the budget we're very clear in saying you need to consider smaller containers i'm sure the society from independent brewers made similar submissions for whatever reason the government hasn't quite paid attention to that very important detail because the really exciting things going on beer that the products being produced by small independent British brewers tend to be produced in 20 litres or 30 litres. And I think the fact that, yes, the Prime Minister and Chancellor were pictured later on that day um, hefting around 20 litre barrels of beer suggests that, that it was cock-up rather than conspiracy. Just someone had assumed that all you know, the casks they saw outside pods were all 40 litres and therefore that would cover what they wanted to do. I'd really hope the government you know, changes its mind on this pretty quickly once I hear from the industry, from people like ourselves. It's a very easy, quick fix. It doesn't change the fundamental nature of what they're trying to do, and it will really support all the brewers, and that's exactly what we intended from the outset with differential duty. And there is a consultation going on on, on this, I believe, now. Yes, yeah, so as always, you, you get all the good news in budget. People immediately expect that they're going to see the, the price of their pints come down the next day. Unfortunately, yeah, this is something which could take until 2023 for all the things to go through the system. So they've launched consultation at the moment. It's a very good opportunity for everyone to say, you know, here are the, the bits and pieces you can just tighten up and make it make sure it's working absolutely fine. Our job now as a campaign is to make sure that nothing is diluted or watered down in the measures that are announced during the budget, and obviously make sure things like those container sizes are just nailed down properly. 
go back to our submission say look we did tell you this it's a really quick fix you know you lose nothing you gain a lot of um of positivity from the trade and although camera as an organization will make representations to the consultation i imagine that for for members uh, they can also take part in a consultation or, or lobby their mp um if they don't wish to to get involved themselves Absolutely. And, and, you know, the strength of camera is its members and it's the efforts of its members over many, many years now, which have seen us successfully get this differential rate established. So, you know, please, members, carry on writing to MPs, tweeting MPs, um, talking to, to anyone that um, they think will listen in terms of just saying, and, and in a positive way, you know, that social media is far too full of people saying you're an idiot for doing this or you're an idiot for doing that. What we've done as an organisation, what I'd really recommend members do is say to the government, well done for taking these steps. You just need to take a very small step further and then it's going to be a really effective measure to help British Brewing. Um, CEBA's provided some template emails. I think we've linked to that and then we'll be uh, telling members how they can get involved over the next couple of weeks and months. And generally in the budget, it, it does seem that there was probably more good news than, than bad news this time around for, for the, the pubs and brewing industry in, in general. Um, I think that the fact that their um, types of duty has gone from 16 to, to 5 now, that, that's at least got to make things clearer, hasn't it? Yes, it's simplified, it makes it clearer. And really importantly, it starts to talk about the fact that lower ABV products are responsible and you can drink them safely. And, and again, without talking deep about the measures announced, just look at and listen to the language that a non-drinking councillor used in the budget where he talked about pubs as being vital communities. He talked about going to pubs to drink, draft beer as being safe and responsible. I think that's a real measure of the success of the lobbying that we've done and other industries have done to establish pubs as a force for good and British brewing as a force for good. And it's not a syntax anymore as it used to be considered. It's something which you can support without supporting all alcohol sales. And differential rate really makes it much easier for government for the future. So we will support the good bits about beer production and drinking and pubs and community without having to be seen to be making it much cheaper to get cheap supermarket booze. One thing I think perhaps the industry has been looking to hear more about from the Chancellor is small producers' relief. What, what's happening with that? Well, it's, it's a very complex issue, small brewers' relief, and uh, we've wrestled with it, the government's wrestling with it, many in the industry wrestling with it, and I don't think we're hugely surprised that they didn't choose the budget in which to announce what is going to be quite complex. So they're still reviewing it, they're, they're still consulting on it. We really hope that they take on board the comments that we've made and others have made that you know, no brewer should be worse off as a, a result of reform of small brewers' relief and that we shouldn't see small brewers more heavily taxed as a result. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time and a lot of work looking at this and, and representing our views to the government, as have many others in the industry, and, and we just going to keep our fingers crossed that we will see the government building on this, this concept that community pubs are good, that small independent British brewers are good, and that they should be supporting them and making sure that the landscape is as fair as possible for, for brewers of all sizes. Well, it seems the budget was a cause for celebration for camera, for members who have campaigned and lobbied their MPs for this. There will be some, perhaps cynically, who will say, well, hang on a minute, we're talking about 2023 and we're talking about 3p off the price of a pint. And who, in all fairness, is really going to notice that 3p in February, 16 months down the line? It's always a difficult one, isn't it? Because you end up sort of having to have the message of, well, 
your beer could have been more expensive had it not been for this. So I think realistically, we'd love to see producers and licensees pass on actual reductions in costs. But realistically, this is just going to mean they don't have to put prices up as much because we're very, very mindful and synthetic that the raw material prices are going up, energy costs are going up, brewers are struggling to find cardboard to put their beers, you know, the, the cans in, they're, they're struggling to find supplies to find the cans or bottles. Every part of their business has increased in price. What this has done is uh, taken some off that duty burden which they face and means they don't have to put out the price so much. And as I said, it sets that important precedent that it splits off draft beer served in pubs from the rest of alcohol duty, which means it gives the government more flexibility to give more duty relief, and certainly this is what we'll be campaigning for in the future, um, to, to really reduce that tax burden on a pint in a pub and hopefully start to narrow that gap between the cost you pay in a pub and the cost you pay for cheap beer in a supermarket. Well, there we go. I mean, there's truly been some positive things to come out of the budget, which is uh, a little bit of a rarity, a nice surprise in, in many ways, but down to a lot of hard campaigning on uh, for everyone involved with camera. And I think we can look forward to their implementation. It was quite nice to, uh, I mean, listen, don't get me wrong, you see a lot of stuff locally, um, certainly around where I am with camera and, and all the campaigning that we do, certainly in that community save the local pub level. But this is one of those things that I thought, you know what, this feels like we've really done something massive at a national level, especially with this budget. And I know that I emailed my MP, and fair play, he came back to me. He did come back, and it wasn't one of those automated, generic responses. He took the time to write back to me after I campaigned, and I'm really pleased to see that we've seen a positive impact at, uh, at the uh, at the latest budget. Yeah, and there was a, there was a, a lot on social media um, about um, the budget. Um, you know, for, from the, the camera point of view and camera members' point of view after the announcements. And uh, great to have the opportunity to talk to Tom and um, to hear a little bit more than just a, a sort of one-off statement from from camera, which many branches would have had to circulate. But but to hear the detail on that. Mm. Now, in a final bit of camera news, uh, a quick mention of the new World Beer Guide by Rotzaprot. It is out to buy now, uh, and there's also the Essential Guide to Pub Clubs, Breweries and More, the Good Beer Guide 2022, that is out on 12th of November. So get that um, date in your diaries. Um, with a special foreword, I think we talked about this before, by King of Twitter, Superstar James Blunt. Sounds a cracker, doesn't it? <laughs> remember that camera members receive a discount on all books at the camera bookshop. Do you know what I'm looking forward to most about receiving my copy of The Good Beer Guide? The gorgeous blue cover. I just like the shade of it. I think it's going to be great on my bookshelf. Now, listen, if you're getting in the mood for... I'm going to say it, folks. I'm sorry. But I'm not sorry, actually. I'm proud. If you're looking forward to the Christmas holiday season... Too early, mate. It's never too early. The John Lewis advert dropped at time of recording. It's fantastic. It's another masterpiece. Well done, folks, and the marketing team there. But listen, if you're getting ready for Christmas, I think there's going to be people out there making the extra effort from the one they missed out from last year. Why not go into the camera shop? There's loads of stuff in there for the beer or cider lover in your life. Gift memberships, a beer box, a T-shirt, all the merch that we know and love. Maybe give it a turn. Of course, all the profits go towards the campaign. So it's all for a very good cause. Yeah, I should be uh, drawing up my wish list, I'm sure, before too long. But before that, it's time for our next interview. And Alison Tafts is in conversation with Rachel Hendry of the Burham Collective, who want a safer, healthier and fairer working environment for people in the drinks and hospitality industry. 
I'm here with Rachel Hendry. She's been working for many years in hospitality, uh, currently working with wine and drinks and also writing extensively and involved extensively uh, with the Burham Collective. So, Rachel, what better person for me to talk to about the pub of the future? Where are we are we at the moment in terms of pubs and bars, do you think? I went away last week and I went to a couple of pubs and bars and I think I've lost my certainty in how pubs and bars operate because there is now this mix of starting to go back to before coronavirus uh, serving procedures uh, but also still keeping some of those methods in place. So there's no um, going and go, oh, I know I have to go to the bar or it is definitely table service. I think it's a really weird time at the moment because there's no consistency every pub and bar is being very much led by the staff. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it certainly is a very varied situation out there at the moment, sort of immediately post-pandemic. And I guess it's interesting to see what difference it will make in the long run to the way that um, things just work culturally in pubs and bars. What's your feeling in general, though, over the last sort of five or ten years? How have things been heading I don't actually go to pubs very often, which is why we had Ellie King write a piece on pub culture, uh, looking at the history of pubs and who has been legally allowed to drink in pubs at what times. So there are spaces that are definitely growing and that I feel a lot more comfortable in than I maybe would have five, not quite 10 years ago. But um, they're still not always places that I feel entirely comfortable. But I do think that conversations that are happening and awareness around that is definitely starting to evolve and happen more frequently, which is very exciting to see. It's exciting to see that evolution, isn't it, of, of change and imagine what might happen in the future. I, I, for me, certainly, I think there's never been a better time in terms of choices uh, of different types of places to go, but also the drinks on offer when you get there. I mean, it's just amazing. Some of the wide variety of choices, uh, although at the same time, uh, we, we need to keep our eye on cask, don't we? Because I think that's having a little bit of a, a bumpy time immediately post-pandemic. I'm starting to see uh, numbers of cask beers shrinking a little bit. But have you got some examples, Rachel, of good practice that you've seen in pubs where you've thought, oh, that's brilliant? And what sort of things have you been uh, spotting? Good practices that I've seen are things like gender-neutral toilets and toilets that are uh, accessible um, for those with disabilities, um, have baby-changing facilities in, gender-neutral as well, because I think that is something that can cause trepidation. I live in Wales, so it's uh, menus that are written in Welsh and English uh, to promote the Welsh language. And the range of drinks on offer as well. So it's starting to see a lot more um, low or no ABV options for those that aren't drinking. One of my best friends has been sober for about two years now. So deciding where we're going to drink is always tricky because I'm aware that she doesn't just want to sit with a pint of soda water. So it's been nice to see some places that are trying to become more aware and have more on offer for those who want to go to the pub but don't want to drink alcohol. That's certainly been improving considerably. I mean, we've been attempting to create a really interesting low and no list 
uh, since we opened and I'm finding it much easier these days to find interesting and exciting things to bring in for people to drink and put together a list that really looks quite you know quite interesting quite exciting for people they can sit all evening and have lots of different things that, that are tasty uh, the other thing we keep a beady eye on is, is gluten free uh, and again we're seeing more and more uh, gluten free really delicious and interesting gluten free beers um, big shout out to Brass Castle who are making some amazing different beers who are completely gluten free in the main so yeah it's great to see those as well isn't it yeah gluten free is a really good shout actually I worked in a craft beer bar last year it's something I hadn't really thought about before working in somewhere that specialised in beer and going if you are gluten intolerant or if you see that you just cut you can't drink this so it's that awareness of why people can't drink beer as it is whether that be gluten intolerances or the alcohol level or vegans and um, with lactose as well any other things in terms of the way the pub or bar is run that you've spotted that you like so I think it just depends on what the individual wants from their experience. But I just think the best thing about going to a pub or anywhere is just that feeling of being part of a community, which especially in the last couple of years has been almost taken away from us, really. We've all been very isolated. So it's that warmth and friendliness of those working there and seeing mutual respect between those who are drinking and those that are pouring the drink. It's just little things like customers knowing the bar staff's names is always a very small thing but that just shows that whenever a customer who comes in and is a regular makes the effort to ask my name and even find out a couple of things about me so that every time they come in we have a conversation it doesn't happen very often so whenever I see that in other spaces I think that's really lovely the bar as a place to order is not always the most accessible thing, mainly from the height. So just that flexibility of knowing when someone is good to order at the bar or actually I can come to the table and come to you and that kind of freedom and flexibility of moving between the two kinds of services. So in terms of your ideal pub of the future, if you could sort of give me an idea of what that might look like. I really enjoyed reading Katie's piece on it and I'm really glad that it's something that's being explored because I think sometimes it's really tricky to kind of go change needs to happen but I don't know where to start but actually if you kind of go all the way to the end to go this is like your ideal pub of the future and work backwards it's just a, a really good way of thinking about it. Katie made this piece about the, the pub of the future that this has kind of been inspired by. I think some of the things she talks about on there are quite, you know, quite inspirational. The idea of using the pub for community purposes when it's not being used as a pub and sort of maximising the benefit there. That's that's great stuff. It's kind of going, we want this to be a community space, but then actually going, what actually do we mean by community and who do we mean by community? everyone has different needs and it's how to create this space and the joy of the pub is that it caters to as many people's needs as possible and everyone feels comfortable going there and drinking there and being there lots of things Katie had written about and I've worked in hospitality for years and there's things that I hadn't thought of as well it was talking about teaching the bar staff sign language but I thought was oh yes of course that would make the world of difference I think that's superb where those kind of things are, are possible and, and those kind of ideas. And we're just about to embark on some dementia training for the team um, because there's a movement with one of our local councillors to make this area very dementia friendly. So we're sort of going to do a session on that. And I think there's lots of things you could think about that, that just offer more, isn't there? Just those little bits that offer more. And, and, and actually all of it adds together to make the team feel more confident. 
and this is what we want from our pubs, but also being aware that then the people that work there are not just becoming bar staff, but if anything, they're becoming almost community workers. Having things like dementia awareness training is brilliant. I think especially working in a place that works with alcohol and with people who like to drink alcohol as well, it would be lovely to see some form of training. You do get to witness people maybe drinking too much. A lot of your job is listening to other people about their days and their problems. And I've done a couple of years training as a mental health counsellor. That was invaluable in just the listening skills that I developed that I think you need as a hospitality worker to kind of like know how to listen and to communicate and when to safeguard and signpost, which I think is something that is useful when you're working in a space that people can't for whatever reason, but there is also alcohol drunk there as well. I think that kind of training and that sort of thinking about hospitality workers is, is hugely positive um, Yeah, for all of us who work with, with food and drink, um, as you say, particularly in alcohol environments. So yes, any other small things, Rachel, little things that you would, maybe even frivolous things that you would enjoy to see in a pub of the future? My favourite pubs are pubs with personalities. Mm. There's a pub where my mum and dad live in Warwickshire called The Fish. Chaos is the best way to describe it. You just have to go in to see it to believe it. There's a room that's just flamingo themed <laughs> and there's another room that's um, been designed as if it is the circus. And you can just tell that whoever runs it or whoever staffs it have just been given so much free reign over what they can do with the space and how they can decorate it. That is such a, a true representation of the, the people that work there. And I think that is something I would like to see more of. Well, that's the, that's the human touch that we're back to again, isn't it? Real world stuff. And that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Rachel. Thank you ever so much for your time. Oh, no, thank you so much, Alison. Thank you. <laughs> There we are. Lots of interesting stuff there to get us all thinking about how things might change going forward, isn't there? Now, perhaps some of those thoughts might come out in our next section as well. We're only here for the beer. Let's start by having some examples of pubs that we've all been to that have been particularly welcoming and perhaps go the extra mile to reach out to people in the community. Yeah, well, I, I can immediately think of a, a pub that uh, really does that. They can be found in the Good Beer Guide, in the obviously the 2021 book, because we haven't got the 2022 book is in doubt at time of broadcast. But um, I'm going to mention the Oaks Barn pub in Bury St Edmunds. It's a real ale-free house. And uh, in, in the book, it makes a point that it's a social hub in the town centre. Um, it's got historic links to the town. It's got six real ales, always on the bar. They do a roast on the first Sunday of the month and the the pub hosts so many different groups they have a knitting group they have folk music they have um, a multicultural women's book club there's something called um, or was called blokes at the oaks which was for older men who are perhaps on their own who don't have much chance to go out and socialize and um, they have meet up Mondays again for people who perhaps live on their own and don't get a chance to to have much social interaction um they can go to meet up monday at the, the pub now 
I'm saying all of this, a lot of these things were happening before the lockdowns. I think if you're looking into any pub that's offering a whole range of community and social activities, some of those may may have been a little slower to get back going again. And I don't know the exact position at the Oaks Barn. If you are ever in Bury St Edmunds, do seek out the the Oaks Barn. It's uh, it's, a, it's a great welcoming place, and and I'd I'd really recommend it. Um, and uh, the beer's pretty good too. I was at time of recording, fresh out of a um, trip to the theatre to see Rod Gilbert, the Welsh comedian. Saw him last night, absolutely fantastic. I went down as I get this. I should have seen him three years ago. I got a ticket as a gift, and obviously COVID and putting back the show and putting back the show. We finally got to watch him last night. Uh, but before we did, we went down to uh, to Dunstable, which is where the theatre is, the Grove Theatre. And in the pub next door, those who live in that area will know we've got the Gary Cooper, a lovely, uh, a lovely establishment. And I was there with my best friend Craig for a few hours before the show. It's one of those places that it's just very big. It's very welcoming. Got lots of room for people to move about in. And it was one of those that even for a big place, they still feel like it had a good soul to it. And funnily enough, as we were walking in there, there were there were a few people coming through um, in wheelchairs. And you could have counted on two hands the amount of people that got up to help to make sure that people could get in and out, moving out of the way, making sure that people got tables and seats and things like that. So really, really welcoming place. It was a lovely couple of hours drinking some delicious beers and actually had a pint of Devon darkness in there last night, which is absolutely superb. So I've gone for um, an unusually named pub uh, uh, for what doesn't sound the most welcoming. It's called the Spider's Web in Grimsby, and I've got to say, if I was a fly, I wouldn't mind being caught in there. Hey. You know, it would be it would be all right. And the reason I mention this because um, it just does a really good job. I think of it. It's got a lovely large sun trap garden. It does a really good job of, of having a lovely area for kids to play in it, but also keeping it lively for the for the for the groups of the you know there was there was probably i think there was almost like stag dudes in that in there as well it just managed to cater for absolutely everybody and it also had some fantastic beers in there i had a pint of wayne wright uh, yeah, in yeah. there and just uh, just an absolutely fantastic place that welcomes everybody good to know that there are some very welcoming um and inclusive pubs around uh, for, for people to seek out and obviously anyone listening who who knows of a pub that's really inclusive let us know about it on on twitter or indeed um, by by dropping us an email or, or another social media dead right claire now it's time for our third interview and here john ram is chatting with david jesu dason and this one is just like they're sitting at the bar and having plenty to talk about so i'm here with david jesu dason today and um, we're going to talk about diversity and inclusion and whatever else we find to talk about. Hi. Thanks for having me on this. I really appreciate having a platform to talk about this. So I've read a couple of your articles and they were talking about Desi pubs. Uh, well, tell me a bit more about what they were, because I'm from a small town in North Wales and I'd never heard of this type of pub before. So um, Desi, um, the word means home. So it was this idea of recreating a bit of home for people who came to this country to work. So used out in other contexts, like my parents would say, I have a chai Desi style, so like done in the home style, or or if a curry was cooked Desi style, it wasn't cooked to like Western standards kind of thing. And so um, the first sort of Desi pubs were set up in industrial heartlands, places like Smethwick, Mm -hmm. where um, Indian people would work in the factories and then they wouldn't be allowed in the pubs in the area. A lot operated a colour bar, so they were banned. This is before the Race Relations Act. And then other pubs would have, uh, they wouldn't be welcome. So 
a lot of Desi pubs took over um, National Front pubs that were very racist. And they were intended just for Indian people. But actually what happened is because they served Indian food and that kind of thing, that the white people would come in as well. And then as time progressed, they changed and they, they've just become like a part of the social fabric of this country. So near me, I live in South London. There's one called the Gladstone and that's run by uh, an Indian sister and brother and they've recently come to this country, so I don't know, 10 years ago, that kind of thing. And they set it up and they have very good craft beer selection and they paired it very good with Indian food. And the thing that's quite interesting about the, all these Desi pubs is that often people will go into them and just assume that the people they're being served by are the workers there mm. because their default setting is of a white landlord. And, and so they still exist, do they? Would they still call themselves Desi pubs now? Desi pubs is definitely a term that Indian people would use. Like there's a few in Southall, that kind of thing in West London. I discovered after writing the article that they are actually all around the country. There's a few in Leicester and there might be one in Bradford, definitely mm. one in Croydon. And so more and more of them came out of the woodwork. There was one in Leeds where it was kind of like an unofficial one where it would be part of the curry house and the beers would be brought in. They're kind of like a, a very hard thing to define anyway because a lot of pubs have associations with curry houses and then the lines get blurred. But I suppose at the time, people of Indian origin couldn't go into many mainstream pubs without feeling unwanted. So the first landlords that owned Desi pubs had to put up with a lot of racist abuse in the way that people of my generation just wouldn't have tolerated it. They would serve people who were racist and put up with racist abuse. That's just what it was like then. And I think the way the country has gone is that I don't think they would be very welcome if they set up in, you know, very traditional towns. And so that's why and the, the new newer Desi pubs, the one I mentioned, are going to be more metropolitan areas. But that said, the area of South London that the Gladstone in is very traditional. Mm. And so I, I remember going to the bar and there's a postman at the bar and there's the ch normal kind of chats that you would have in a traditional pub. But just the presence of a brown person makes those people naturally more liberal and open-minded, I think. It has to have got at least theoretically better after the act. But do you think pubs are genuinely now more accepting places? So in London and metropolitan areas, in general, I'd say yes, but with a caveat and that caveat is, is that often I'm very patronised when I go to um, beer places. They don't expect a person of colour to know about craft beer. And I, I will go to a pub if I love the idea of it. So mm. the setting and everything and the, what's it like inside. And I don't care if there's a bit of hostility or microaggressions. And I remember one pub, which I won't name, that has these amazing fires in the middle of it and it brews its own beer. And the landlord just wouldn't stop bothering me about this curry. He just was obsessed with knowing my feedback on what this curry was like. And it got really embarrassing. And it's like, I didn't feel welcome, actually. And everyone was looking at me when mm. I was doing this. And I just thought, like, you didn't need to do this i will come back to this pub as well that's the thing i'm willing to do but i really don't want to have to put up with that kind of bs no no and that was just because you, you happen to be brown so you must know everything about curries right that in itself is very difficult to unpick this idea that i must be an expert on curries because that guy's probably had more curries than me british people do eat curries a lot yeah. so my curries are going to be different and then you know i don't want, really want to have to go into huge amounts of detail about that with a stranger 
when I wrote to you, I did mention the fact that I happen to be blind as well. A lot of what you're saying, I have parallels. You go into a pub and you, you get a nice pint and someone says, I know a blind person who lives in Manchester. Um, do you know him? And I'm like, no, actually. <laughs> I have recently interviewed a gentleman who is in a wheelchair because I was doing a story about accessibility of tap rooms. And um, I went for a drink with him in his hometown. And to be honest with you, on what we're talking about, the level of nonsense that he puts up with is far greater than what I put up with. Mm-hmm. So he was coming out of his car, he was reversing out, and everyone just stopped and stared. And the worst thing that is that when he, if he were to get drunk, and there's times where he has got drunk, people will come up to the personal assistant and say, what are you doing? Why are you allowing him to get drunk? That is really hidden. That, I would say that's verging, microaggression verging into outright aggression. That is the level of ignorance that is at the top end of the kind of thing I would get. And I do not get it as regular as he did because I just walked into that place, no problem. And, you know, I ordered my beer, but was, he was looking at the what beer to order and the bartender asked the personal assistant what he wanted yeah, when he's a beer and cider expert. Yeah. I came away really feeling angry about that and thinking, actually, I don't put up with that level of bullshit. You can walk into a pub, especially the smaller pubs, and the whole place just goes quiet. And you're like, so really, it'd be quite nice now if someone told me where the bar was, <laughs> as opposed to me having to wander around banging into their tables while they watch me. Well, that's what people were doing with this guy. They weren't moving the tables. There were people sat on a table, which was lower down when there were only high tables. Yeah. We've made all these things a taboo because I don't think they were in the past. People had more issues like this. We seem to have this idea that craft beer is a default of a white trendy thing for able-bodied people who are Mm -hmm. maybe cis. You know, we need to just like think of other people. In the pub context, it has to be led by the landlord, really, or the bar staff, because I think they set an example. I know the pub I call my local. If someone with a wheelchair came in, the landlady would be right on it, and she would find them the best place to sit, find where they wanted to be. She would make that happen, because that's how she is. Yeah, I I think it is a huge amount of education that's needed. And what's interesting is that some pubs can't do it because they're a listed building. They can't offer that kind of accessibility. But others, like there's one hotel in this town and they'd spent millions of pounds renovating it to make it more accessible, but he still couldn't go in a restaurant. Other things that he mentioned were, and you might have this as well, is that he struggled with anything that was like events. So often, I would just have it above the pub. Well, that's no use for him, you know, Mm. so he'd have to miss out on it. Thinking about accessibility, it means completely different things to different people. What I think about is when I walk in and, and I go, what beers have you got on? And they go, well, what do you like? And they're like, well, do you want a dark beer or a light beer? And I'm saying, I don't care what colour it is because I can't see. I want to know what you've got on tap. <laughs> and it, it, it fascinates me that they think they can sort of bypass my choice by trying to make choices for me, if you like. Well, it's an assumption you know nothing about beer, isn't it? You're a blind guy, you're, you're going to drink anything, which is horrendous. Which I'm definitely not. <laughs> yes, absolutely, yeah. It has to be better than it was in, say, the 60s or 70s. Well, near me in Forest Hill is the Dartmouth Farms, and the Dartmouth Farms had a colour bar, and what happened was the mayor of Lewisham brought a, a friend of his in who was black. They refused to serve the black guy, so obviously it became a national issue, and it became a very important symbolic thing in changing the legislation in this country. 
put a plaque up, mm. put loads of information in the pub about it. That will make people feel welcome and educate them about it. Because the interesting thing, and it's very hard to sort of work out the research, and I'd love to know about this, is the pubs that were racist in the past, where after the Race Relation Act, how many years did it take for them to change yes. and be welcoming? Yeah. Because all these things are ingrained. Yeah. It is really tricky. I think also that... Brewing could do a lot more as well and have more people of colour involved in it. The process from beginning to end. It fascinates me the way people do all this judging and and discrimination based on the colour of people's skins and what they assume about them because of that colour. We have a prime minister who says racist things. We've had presidents who said racist things in America. You know, it's all this feeds into the the into why we're the way we are which means it's very difficult to say how do you change a problem like this but i think it is just changing the default and that's why i like the idea of desi landlords the idea of a landlord the default is a white middle-aged man isn't it because that's what we have in our heads is what it can be but it should be it could be a woman could be a blind person disabled person a black person asian person it could be anything and then that is where things change the landlord is an important role in in society and they're gatekeepers, but they're also support networks. But then they also have this idea that they're inviting you into their lounge. So it's like service industry and all these things. But that's where it makes the British pub compelling, I think. My favourite landlord is this guy, Barry, who used to run the Anchor in... Oh, no, I think he is. He's still landlord of the Anchor in Seven Oaks, And he, on Christmas Day, would open up for a few hours, serve the locals and then drive them home. That's the default of a landlord, kindness. Mm, mm, That's mm. what it should be. So can you give any good examples of, for example, where pubs have got it right and where there's good practice? The best way of looking at this is to look outside England and maybe look to Scotland. I love Edinburgh. And what I like about Edinburgh is it's so inviting. When you go into a pub, people are curious about you. So they do want to know where you're from but they ask you in the right way. Asking where you're from out of nowhere is really quite intimidating. But assuming that you're like, they hear the accent, like, so they're interested and they engage. And so there's friendliness and then it comes from that. And then you can then describe everything like that. Mm. So I think it's being curious, but being curious in a non-aggressive way, if that makes sense. I do also think, maybe this is just me, but I do think that certain things under COVID have helped. I'm not the biggest fan of ordering at the bar. I think that sometimes because you go to the bar and you want to tell them your drink preferences, but there's people sat at the bar and you feel a bit like, oh, this is a bit intimidating. Right. When they moved to table service, it was more one-on-one and like, almost like a beer sommelier. You certainly got told what there was because you, you weren't able to see the pumps, of course. Do you have a vision, say, of, of what the pub of the future might look like or how things could be done better? I really hope that the pub of the future includes the pub of the past. Because my favourite pubs, if I were to really think about it, are places like in Lewis, because I love Harvey's beer, but the way that the pub seems to be there, frozen in time, mm-hmm. in a good way. But then also alongside, have things like tap rooms, um, street food, Yes. Uh, markets, that kind of thing. Yeah. I think the important part of a tap room and all the rest of it is the connection to the brewery and the connection to your favourite beer. Near me, villagers in Deptford have a tap room and I love their beer and I want to go whenever they have a new beer and I want them to explain how it was made and why they're excited about it. A pub really can't offer me that. No. It's got a vested interest. I would really like it if people who started drinking when they're 18, they drink in a pub because the landlord 
has a really important role in being responsible. And I'm not sure if you can have that if you were going to these other places, because it's not really what they're set up for, are they? No, absolutely not. And that's probably a conversation about Bobco's, which we're not going to have right now. <laughs> I'll tell you what, they did it properly, didn't they? They certainly covered quite a lot of areas there. I mean, David has written a few articles in the Pellicle magazine, including one on Desi pubs and as always there are of course links in the show notes if you want to read the whole thing because David does do a fantastic article yeah he he really does do some some great articles I've been reading a, a few of them recently and I think we've seen from both interviews that uh, inclusivity is really important and one thing also that uh, I noticed was that future pubs also need to reflect traditions such as being part of the community having a connection with local breweries and cider makers and of course food producers and I guess like the idea behind the Desi pubs, if pubs aren't providing what people want, then people are now likely to set up the sort of pubs that, that they do want. We've seen that happening as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You need to look at the latest edition of the Beer magazine. It talks about the power of the community pub. Great article by Laura Hadland in the latest issue. Now, listen, usually we'd do an archive dive here, folks, but this episode has already been quite crammed with a bit of a blockbuster of these fantastic interviews and, of course, the budget reaction. So we're going to save it for a week for the flashback for another episode because, of course, this one is all about looking into the future anyway, isn't it, Marty McFly? (laughs) It is, Doc. And on that note, I think we should have everyone's last orders, please. And I I guess we can't look at... orders or is it next orders? I'm not quite sure. I do. Well, we need to look to the future. Maybe it's a beer that we that we want to drink tomorrow instead yeah. of uh, one that we've drunk already. Well, I'll tell you what mine is. So uh, a, a very special cider, because for me, every month is cider month. You know, I don't mind that we're just out of it now. Uh, and I'm going to give a special one. It's a Rawlin Cider. Um, made by a family cider maker. Uh, I've got their medium uh, I had last night, and I'll be trying their sweet tomorrow. So uh, uh, that's uh, a little bit of future looking for us, at least. <laughs> Absolutely delicious um, and a fantastic range and made in the right way. Uh, wonderful cider. Well, I'm going to uh, stick with a beer, and it is from the Earl Soham Brewery, um, based in Suffolk. And it's their Brandiston Gold. And it's a popular beer that's brewed with local ingredients. And I thought, you know, um, with everything that's been talked about with COP26 and keeping things local, that was a, a good one to choose. But I can't remember if I'd had... I must have had this beer before, but I, I had a pint of it the other night at a fairly local pub. And I don't know if I haven't had this before, why I haven't had it before, or why it's taken me such a long time to have it again if I, I have, because it was really nice, lovely, sharp very sort of clean flavour, a little bit citrusy um, and malty on the finish, but really nice pint. I'm familiar with a number of the other Earl Soam beers. Their Gannet Mild, for example, is also lovely. But yeah, I'll certainly be looking out for Brandiston Gold again um, in the future. Oh, that sounds good. Gannet Mild. I used to get called a Gannet as a child because I used to eat my food too quickly. Gannet Mild is really nice. <laughs> well, I've got, I'm drinking a very futuristic sounding beer this week and I've got in my hands a analogue set. And that's not that's not a, a, a Sega Mega Drive or anything. It's actually the name of the beer by North Brewing Co-op in Leeds. And this is a hazy IPA. It's absolutely delicious. I'm drinking it right now so I can vouch for it. Got talus hops in there, so it's nice and hoppy. Real nice, juicy orange zest flavours. And there's even little, little hints of coconut in the finish as well. So it's a nice beer. So mine's analogue set. 
Excellent. Just just what you want for the future, really. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, exactly. Well, that's just about all we have time for, except to say that our next episode is another Beer City special. Now, last season, we had a look at London. This time, we're heading to the massive and vibrant Beer City of Manchester yeah. and its pubs, breweries oh, and beers. So the sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> Join us for the next episode of Pubs, Pints, People. And cheers. 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 <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How does a free case of beer sound? Yes, you can grab a case for free courtesy of our pals at Beer 52 by going to www.beer52.com forward slash people. That's the numbers 52 in the 52 and covering the meagre postage cost of £5.95. And what's more, as a special offer for our listeners, they'll throw in two extra beers for free. So that's 10 unique craft beers. Beer 52 is actually the biggest beer club in the world. Each month, they send their members a case of beer from a different part of the world, and this month it's an absolute belter. Their great European road trip case takes in the best beers from across the continent. So try a crisp, refreshing Pilsner from Norway's Lervig Brewery and a monster 7.5 double IPA from Sweden's Durges Brewery. On the dark side this month, there's a smooth stout from Copenhagen's Tool. There's also beer from Croatia... Poland, Germany, Serbia and Austria, among others. And if dark beer's not your thing, you can choose the light-only case. Also included is the ever-insightful Ferment magazine and a couple of tasty snacks. And even if, after all that, you're still unsatisfied, you can simply pause or cancel at any time. So head over to www.beer52, that's the numbers 5 and 2, dot com forward slash people to claim your free case of 10 beers now.